here we go. If you have the chance to walk off with a half million dollars, would you take it? Yeah. What do a stewardess, a gunrunner, a bail bondsman, an ex-con, a federal agent, and a beach bunny have in common? You gonna come in on this thing with me. You got to be prepared to go all the way. They're all chasing a half million in cash. Wouldn't he be missed? Half a million dollars will always be missed. Let him get the money and then just take it from him. She's trying to play your ass against me, huh? That was fun. There's only one question. Who's playing who? Let's make a deal. Oh, yeah? So what's she going to give us? Are you going to offer to set him up? Yeah. Is she dead? I, I, I... Yes or no, is she dead? Pretty much. Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. When you absolutely, positively got to kill every mother in the room, except no substitutes. <laughs> I should fake you walking down a long terminal wall, like hall. <laughs> Yeah. like point blank with yeah. with <laughs> what is it uh what's this what's the song that is kind of repeated in this oh uh, across 110th street 110th street oh just yeah play that just yeah. play that in welcome back to a brand new episode of reconsinimation i'm john diner i'm david munchak i'm brent hutchins and this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s 80s and 90s and it's september that must mean it's our annual look back at Mr. Quentin Tarantino and the QTCU. The QTCU. Quentin Tarantino we, Cinematic Universe. We do that oh. every year? We've been doing it the last few years. Yes, sir. What, which movies did we do? We did Reservoir Dogs. We did True Romance. True Romance. And now this. So this is those all fall in September. Look, well, how about that? Yes, our, our dark month of September coming off of a hot Alcatraz August. Uh, and... You know, this one is uh, it's a special look back because it's a 25th anniversary of QT number three. That would be Jackie Brown. All right. I'm cool. excited. Yeah, uh, we you know, we, we really don't have that many Tarantino films that we can talk about in the in the you know, the era we're talking about for the show. So there's really only three, maybe four. I guess four, yeah. With the first Kill Bill would fall under there, but you know, and we can always yeah. go further if we want. But we could throw four rooms in. You know, I mean, he did. He did yeah. one of those stories. Yeah, if, if you wanted to, four rooms from dusk till dawn. There you go. There you go. So there's yeah. still some left for for the for the taking. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Good point. But um, Quentin Tarantino, one of the very you it feels like modern day auteurs how do you guys feel about tarantino now versus when he first got popular and first came up i'm starting to watch his movies now so <laughs> they're pretty good like you know kind of yeah like i'm enjoying them sure yeah i don't know i didn't know what the hype was all about back then because i wasn't watching those movies so so when tarantino came up you were you didn't jump on that bandwagon 
Yeah, I mean, I just I didn't know what to I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't give it a I didn't watch any of his movies like for a while. I think mm-hmm. did I was Kill Bill the first movie I saw? Probably yeah, Kill Bill probably. So that's interesting. Yeah, I it's opposite for me. So I mean, not that I've never not gone to see whatever the next Tarantino movie is, but after Pulp Fiction. You know, I mean, that was right in that time where I was getting ready to go to film school and he was kind of a very fresh and new approach, uh, kind of a new hard edged sort of sharp uh, storytelling that hadn't really seen much of up to that point. And so I was always really eager to see the next Tarantino movie. I think as I've aged and he's done more and more like I'm less like first in line to go see his Mm -hmm. movies. I I also think that just with a lot of these directors that are kind of auteurs that, that we talk about, you know, um, at a certain point, I feel like they become, and I've mentioned this before, they become kind of, I don't know, kind of prisoners of their own devices. And, you know, like I kind of go through phases of being into it Mm -hmm. not being into it. And, um, not that I haven't enjoyed most of Tarantino's recent stuff. I will say that, you know, I think Hateful Eight and Django were a little less kind of where I like things when it's his storytelling. Um, once very, Upon a Time in Hollywood. Very much Ho- agree. Very yeah, much once, agree. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think, was more kind of back in the the saddle of what I enjoy. Although, like, I will say rewatchability, like, I haven't really found myself interested in sitting down and rewatching it. Uh, but after first view, like I enjoyed it and thought it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it was just the right amount of crazy, a lot of, uh, just the right amount of Tarantino, I guess. And, uh, so, but his early stuff, you know, after really reservoir dogs and Pulp Fiction, I was glued, like I was ready, you know, to, to see whatever the next one was. Yeah. I was, uh, I was a little late to the party on just a little bit late to the party on Tarantino. And for some reason, yeah, I, I think I've only seen kill bill volume one was the only one I saw in the theater when it came out all the mm-hmm. rest. I just, I always seem to just wait on it. And, and when it hits video or streaming or whatever, um, Oh, that's not true. I saw once upon a time in Hollywood in theaters, but the rest all, all I saw later on. Interesting. Um, I think but, Hateful yeah. Eight is the only one that I did not see in the theater. Mm. Well, I've seen yeah. it. I've seen Kill Bill, Kill Bill Two, Hateful Eight, Django. Uh, what? What else does he have? The Glorious Bastard. Jesus mm. Christ! I've seen more Tarantino movies in the theater than John. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen. Wow. <laughs> Mark it down in history. That's just weird because I, I just thought. Is- I thought you had such a big Pulp Fiction boner that you're just going to see. I, I really do. As soon do. as as soon as his movies come out. Yeah. David, I, David's bringing the expertise on Tarantino. I, I like have it. no expertise, but I'm just like, oh, that looks like a fun movie. That looks fun. Like after yeah. Kill Bill, I'm like, cool. Like, yeah. Like what else you got? Hateful Eight. I don't know. We're never going to review that. But yeah, I didn't. I didn't have fun at the theater at that time. But, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, Can't I'm all be very- winners. I'm very up and down. I, my history with Tarantino is very love it or hate it kind of kind of a deal. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so I've had ups and downs, and I, I've I've loved him and hated him, and and 
I was like obsessed with Pulp Fiction, then I hated it for a while. And we'll, we'll talk about all that in a minute. But, you know, he is one of the feels like to me today's filmmakers There's just so many of them. There's so many movie makers out there and studios and, you know, streaming platforms that there's just so much product out there. So it's harder and harder to have a true auteur, you know, director. Like we've got Tarantino still around, of course, but we've got what Christopher Nolan. I mean, who are some other directors that have a very signature voice or I visual mean, style or what, what do you what do you guys think anybody jump out at you jordan peele maybe these days so i wouldn't kinda... call him an auteur i mean he's yeah. only got what three movies out yeah i mean i think there's probably the groundwork there though but yeah i mean true. for me the one that sticks out the most like wes just anderson. right is wes anderson 100 yeah. yep yeah <laughs> stole your thunder <laughs> yeah no well i mean yeah i mean we've talked about it before wes anderson tim burton is another one although he's like later on but i think david fincher is another one that is kind of more mm -hmm. contemporary you know but um but i agree like you know I, there was a time where certain like pt anderson maybe you know but yeah I, I, yeah i would say him but uh what about denis uh denis villeneuve he's probably a new one you know yeah i i would agree with that like i mean he and his are pretty solid you know like i feel like a lot of times with these type of directors, I just hit a wall at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And it, it may be that Denis has not done enough yet for that to have happened in, in his case, but you know, it might still. Yeah. Do you think Tarantino though, do you think he compares to the like he was so groundbreaking when he first really popped through with reservoir dogs and pulp fiction his more recent films do you think they have whether you like the movies or not i mean just culturally do you think he still has makes an impact versus how he made such an impact in the 90s i mean maybe i still feel like his dialogue and the cadence and rhythm to his to his uh, writing is still really unique. And I think that's really what set him apart, like from, from the offset, right. Is just, mm -hmm. there was an edge to like the things that he was saying that were like rooted in like kind of, uh, real world, you know, but they felt kind of with a twist and it was, I felt pretty interesting. And I think that that still carries through. I mean, you know, I don't know that it carries full movies as well as it did when when he first started but uh, it's damn hard to go and watch a, a Tarantino movie where there's not at least one scene that just obliterates you right mm -hmm. like you just watch it and you're like fuck man that is powerful and well done yeah. it might not be the whole movie but there's always just that you know you're in for one scene that's just gonna like blow your mind you know, and it's all just like lyrically written and it's the cadence and it's the delivery and it's the tone and the context of, of the writing, you know? And so, yeah, I don't know. He's I an, think it holds up. He's an, he's an actor's screenwriter. I mean, the, the, there's a reason he, they're incredible talent. I mean, the movies themselves are one thing, but the scripts are, you know, off the, they, they, they sing off the page. You can't deny that the actors are making a meal out of every scene that they're in. And they're shot interesting like mostly it's just it's a it's interestingly shot you know it's well designed mm -hmm. you can't deny that there is like art happening at all times um you know so 
it, it's for for an actor you can just it's it's the same reason Aaron, people work with aaron sorkin he's an actor's writer <laughs> you mm. love or hate aaron sorkin his scripts are just like challenges and 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 poetry you may not like it but it, it's like it's not just some stuff you just see you know it's not yeah. just get it's not just getting to the next scene it's it's something to make a um you know to, to have some fun with but yeah so so no i mean like you can't deny watching a tarantino film that you're you're not like seeing something you wouldn't you're not seeing typical uh you know movie you're not seeing a movie you're seeing a, a film yeah and, and i feel like we saw a real return to form with that with once upon a time in hollywood again yeah people seem to either love or hate that film and there's definitely aspects that i on on multiple viewings like definitely rub me the wrong way <laughs> you know and we'll talk about some of that here because that's a continuing uh you know issue on a lot of his films that whether it's you know, racial things or the treatment of women, you know, that's a big thing, especially for what we're going to talk about today. Um, but yeah, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really came back to what sort of brought him to the dance with with his early films. So that was really refreshing to see. After well, some also, real, yeah, like some real reaching, you know, real reaches with Hateful Eight and Django and those a lot more heavily stylized like to me Django is like for Tarantino what like natural born killers was for Oliver Stone like really visual like really heavy on the zoom ins and zoom outs and the cinematography was was just much more intense than than usually was for him yeah yeah still has a great scene though sure that does. scene with yeah. DiCaprio in the in the parlor yeah is yeah amazing an amazing, like you mentioned, amazing casts in every film. I mean, he just, he attracts great talent. And I think, you know, what probably almost every actor would love to work with him. Yeah. So. I'd like to see Will Ferrell team up with Quentin Tarantino. It'd be, It'd be an interesting mix. That would be, yeah. I mean. I, that, that would that's, be... that's kind of like an amazing team up right there I think. yeah i like that challenge because they're two totally out of the box you know you would not imagine that they would mix well but i bet yeah. that, that would deliver something hard. there'd be some magic there i'd be in yeah, let's yeah. Do it. i'm definitely in for that let's get qt on the phone let's go <laughs> but i am really excited to talk about jackie brown because jackie is like the one tarantino film that is not like the others it, you know we're going to get into it but it's much more toned down. It's not as extreme. The violence isn't isn't as extreme. The overall style, the storytelling style, just isn't as, um, you know, he's not jumping time, you know, time frames as quickly, and and his story isn't. It's a lot more straightforward. Uh, in well, this and it's a and it's a like a true adaptation, right? You know, which, which he, yeah. You know, I know Hateful Eight is like a remake, I believe, of, of, uh, I forget, you know, but, but, uh, this is the first time that he's ever done anything that wasn't his own writing. Yeah. And, uh, mm -hmm. it, and it's interesting to see how it's, how it's aged. So did you guys see this when it, uh, do you see it when it came in theaters or was this a, a video uh, pickup? I think we, we just talked about it, but let's talk about this film in, in particular. Uh, Brent, theater, do you catch this one in theaters? Yes, uh, I did. I saw this one in the theater. 
Remember um, what theater? You know, I don't because I thought I thought you and I had seen it together, but I but we didn't, and so I'm not positive. <laughs> um, but it would have been. It was probably you were probably back home in in Houston. Yeah, for winter, probably yeah. winter break, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I must have seen it with some buddies back back home, but it was uh, definitely a, a, a theater screening for me. Probably opening weekend, mm -hmm. to be honest. I, I probably ended up going to see it with like Andy and and that crew because uh, I saw Big Pulp Nate. Fiction with yeah Big Nate probably uh because andy and i saw pulp fiction together in the theater um and i'm sure it would have been uh something that we both would have been excited to go check out nice david what about you uh i saw it in full uh for the podcast so you tried to Ooh. show it to me at 2 a.m when we were drinking all day and <laughs> fell right. asleep within about 20 minutes so <laughs> that's it's premium, good, good premium Jackie Brown time. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had. That's right. We had a, we had a, a night of alcohol, and deep into that night, I decided to throw Jackie Brown yeah. on. And too late. I'm sure I disappointed you. But for I those just, who have never been able to attend one of the, the the John Diner screenings at his house, he likes to screen till the sun comes up. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's usually starts with an idea of what movies that we're gonna watch, and then. And then once we get through that, uh, we just start throwing throwing things out there. What's this next? Is, this is true. Well, yeah. we didn't really have an and I this this wasn't on the. It's a random. This was oh. like oh, it's it's one thirty two o'clock. Let's put it the moose the movie. We, on. we we had probably watched like, like two movies already. Probably. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we were hanging out. Probably played a board game, watched a movie, then watched another movie, and then you know, got to got a burrito. Who knows. <laughs> That's how those Sounds nights go. Right. Yeah. That's exactly how those well, nights go. And then right. it was like, well, let's watch a movie. <laughs> and those are those are open invitations to all. So uh you know, anytime. They're not exclusive. <laughs> so I I didn't catch this one right away. I um, you know, like I mentioned, I was a little late to the, the pulp fiction party. Uh I did not see that till it was on video. So it was, I believe, like late 95 by the time I caught. Pulp Fiction. It was like six a, months later, more than. <laughs> oh. um, and I knew of Reservoir Dogs, but hadn't seen it. And uh, so I kind of got into those back to back. And then right around the corner was from Dust Till Dawn and Desperado. And so it was like, boom, boom, boom. Suddenly it was all over Tarantino, just obsessed. Uh, and then by the time, you know, there was a gap, there was a three year gap between Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown. And we had just started uh, freshman year of college. So that semester was very much living the the college life. And I, I think I missed a lot of good movies that came out in theaters in the, the fall and winter of 97. I think I saw, I know we saw Scream 2 together, saw Titanic, definitely. Um, what was it? I feel like there was one more, but I missed like Boogie Nights and LA Confidential and Goodwill Hunting, missed all of those. Uh, really? Boogie Nights? Are, yeah. Man. Yep. I didn't see that for a year almost. But Jackie Brown, as, as big of a Tarantino fan, like I, I guess I'm shocked at myself that I just missed that and was just having fun. And um, and then I didn't see it. it. It just was off my radar. You know, like the reviews at the time were not great. So my 
I, I was like, oh, well, I'll just, I'll see it when I see it. And I think between all the rest of our group, like nobody was particularly loving it at the time. So I didn't end up seeing it till like 2003. And uh, wow. I, yeah, I was between shows and I used that time to catch up on like, I would go visit our friend Jared and see like whatever DVDs he had that I hadn't, hadn't seen, I would just borrow like stacks of them and just try to go through them while I was you know looking for a job uh back in my pa days but uh but that's where i saw jackie brown and i was like head over heels for it i, I again i was in love with the movie i was super obsessed with the soundtrack and and everything and and then i was like why, why did i why did i wait all this time but maybe if i'd seen it earlier i wouldn't have loved it as much yeah i think the timing of you seeing it probably did feed into that because i you mentioned you know no one was really talking about it I was in that group, you know, who who had seen it early and I was pretty underwhelmed with it at first. And, you know, I think it just had directly, you know, I think it was directly tied to the fact that, you know, it was this follow up to Pulp Fiction, mm -hmm. and, you know, Pulp Fiction at the time felt kind of revolutionary. And this and this was, you know, not that right. Like yeah. it was it was, uh, um, you know, kind of just a more straightforward kind of caper. Uh, obviously done with the Tarantino twist, but it's uh, it's uh, after rewatching it this time and having some time in between, you know, like I'm with you, like I really, really enjoyed it uh, this last uh, week when I watched it again for the podcast. Like I was surprised by how uh, how different I felt about it this time. Mm. Yeah, I think I think you guys probably not raving about it um added to to me not really running to see it and i remember getting like by like 98 i was really over tarantino and i just felt like there were so many imitations out there that it was just like enough like he, he was just everywhere or his you know ripoffs of his movies were were everywhere you looked and um so i was really like just not you know i started to view pulp fiction even very negatively yeah. <laughs> um and I thought, oh, like, oh, this is overrated. There's so many better movies out there. And, uh, you know, I, I turned around on that. I was mad. I was mad for some reason. Wow. It's it's weird for me, Pulp wow. Fiction. Oh, go ahead, David. No, just wow. Oh. <laughs> That's quite a reaction. Pulp Fiction's I... a strange one for me just because I, like, really enjoy that movie. But I have to be honest, I've not been able to sit down and re-watch that movie i don't think almost ever since it's come out on on home video mm -hmm. like even back after it first came out like i get through half of it and then i'm just like ah i'm gonna turn it off you know like i just don't know what it is like it just doesn't keep me and i still you know like i know that it changed the game and i know that it it was and i still when i watch that first half I love. And then it gets to the point where Vince Vega like stabs her in the heart. And mm -hmm. at that point, it's like it switches over more to the Bruce Willis storyline. And I just am like, eh, okay, I'll I'll catch it, I'll catch it later. Even this last week after I watched Jackie Brown, I was like, man, that's right. Tarantino is a total badass. I need to go back and watch Pulp Fiction. And I couldn't get through it. Yeah. What the Interesting. hell? Man? Interesting. That's uh, I wouldn't have pegged that for you. I know. 
It's bananas. I think <laughs> I've actually only gone through and seen it all the way through one time. Wow. Since it's been out on video. Oh, and I've that's... tried several times. It's like watching a Guy Ritchie movie, right? You want to you get into it, but you know, it's not that good. <laughs> it's hard to maintain your attention. That was like, that was me and Die Hard 2 for a really long time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all this right, made but... me want to watch Beetlejuice again. So I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well speaking of, go. that leads to our, uh, I've got, tri- got a couple trivia questions here. Is okay. the answer Beetlejuice? Well, no, <laughs> no, but that's a potential spoiler. Uh, okay, two. I'm going to do one easy, one hard, and and we'll we'll come back at the end and see who can figure it out. But the, start with the easy one. Name the 1998 film that featured a character from this movie, and for a bonus point, name the actor who played them. So you may already know that one. That's that's the easy one. Hard. That's we'll easy. Get, that's easy. Um, Let's get damn. a little harder. How many films? We, we saw a brief uh, appearance of Sid Haig as the judge in this film. How many movies did Sid Haig and Pam Greer do together? And can you name them? So we'll come back on <laughs> Yeah, those. let's come back to that. Yeah. Okay. David's going to take a little time to just look it up online. Yeah. No, I'm just going to access my memories. Yeah, he's going to go to America <laughs> Online. and I call my movie, my memories Google. <laughs> David still subscribes to Prodigy. Absolutely. Nice. Yeah. So Quentin Tarantino, the, you know, he's one of the things he's most well known for is bringing, you know, certain actors back from sort of obscurity. And he's sort of the king of the, the, the comeback casting. I don't think I don't, you know, just hearing interviews with him and, and learning more about him and, and his style. I don't know if that's actually what his intention is. More than just actors that he grew up loving and maybe just have, you know, their careers have kind of quieted down a bit that it's, it's not intentional just to like, oh, I'm going to make this guy a star. It's just he actually has faith that these are great actors who, you know, need a, a second chance. So right. uh, what do you guys think about that? I think that's an interesting theory. I mean, I believe that. I mean, especially with like Pam Greer and Robert Forrester in this movie, for sure, that's mm-hmm. his approach. I know there were other potential people that they wanted to cast, uh, you know, that the studio wanted to cast in these parts. And, you know, like he was pretty adamant about, about Pam Greer and I know that you know Robert Forster he had seen in a movie that John you and I have talked about a lot in the past called Alligator it lives 50 feet beneath the streets it's 36 feet long it weighs over 2,000 pounds and it's about to break out Alligator which has one of my favorite scary scenes ever from a child, uh, from my childhood. And, uh, and oh, so really? is it the same oh, yeah. one that, that traumatized me to, I don't know, this day? Is it the one where the kid dressed up as a pirate for Halloween and had to walk the plank into the yeah. pool and yeah. then gets eaten by the alligator? Yes, of oh course. My God. Yeah. Uh, the best we're... scene ever. And, <laughs> and so anyway, Robert, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino had seen Robert Forster in that movie as well. And, and, 
you know, just kind of fell in love with him and the idea of him playing, uh, was it Max? Mm -hmm. Max Cherry. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, which, you know, uh, whatever the, the case is, I'm glad the cast that he, that he had in this is, is who played the parts because Pam Greer and Forrester in this movie are freaking awesome, man. They're so good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They have a great chemistry together. And absolutely. I mean, their individual parts are fine. You know, great. Like they're great, but you know, together they, they, they really, they uh, explode off the screen. Yeah. I mean, when we'll talk, we're going to talk in more detail about each of these guys, but you know, it really is sort of a love letter to the the ex, you know the exploitation films of the of the seventies and and really honoring Pam Greer specifically, and then Robert Forster is sort of like coming along with that. You know, Tarantino's a big fan of of a lot of his seventies films as well. But yeah, I mean, he brings these guys back, and you know, who would we have? Keitel really in Reservoir Dogs was sort of the one getting the comeback, even though he's helping to produce it. He just had, he'd been acting all through the eighties, but he had really never become that superstar that it seemed like he was going to be in the, you know, things just kept kind of going off track for him. Things kept kind of missing for him, even though you'd see him, you know, you'd still see him over the years, but he didn't really become that big, big star until after Reservoir Dogs. And then of course, yeah. It's the same with with uh, Travolta in Pulp Fiction, right? I mean, absolutely. There's another guy who was, you know, the last significant thing he had, I think, that he had really done was Look Who's Talking franchise. I mean, if you want to call that significant. Well, but I mean, that had marketability, right? Yes. Like it was yeah. being marketed. Yeah. That had box office. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so, I mean, I don't know. Again, I don't know significant. They made what, two sequels? I don't know if mm-hmm. he's in all three of them or not, but. But uh, I think he know, is. Yeah, I mean, but it, that's after like a disastrous '80s for him. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. he was like, yeah, I mean nobody was, you know, I don't like no one was missing John Travolta at the time, and then he came and did this, and it was a, or did Pulp Fiction, it was a total resurgence. Mm-hmm. So it does start to you start to kind of see a a pattern, you know, like I don't know that again, like it, it, he's necessarily doing it specifically. Or he's just getting people that are recognizable that have some bankability and mm-hmm. then totally casting them in parts that are not familiar to them or, or that people have done, you know, that are in this whole new kind of way of, of writing dialogue that really kind of puts them on a pedestal and, and shines a light on them again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he would continue to do it over the years. I mean, we saw Don Johnson, right, and Django, and and he's had lots of character actors, uh, you know, in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's it's just kind of littered with it, and uh, I think Kill who with, there was somebody in oh uh, David Carradine in in Kill oh, yeah. Bill, and yep. yeah. So I there, mean, there's always a couple. <laughs> Excuse me, Robert Forrester even did. I believe there's an interview where Robert Forrester said because I mean his career was totally dead. Yeah. Like he was not doing any acting. Like he didn't have an agent. He didn't have anything going on when he got cast for this. And he, I think he's even said, like, I was just waiting for some young director to come and cast me so that I would have another shot. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. I mean, Forrester was, 
you know, he started in medium cool, which was, I think, 69, and then starred in a lot of exploitation films in the 70s. Of course, you know, you mentioned Alligator. We're going to have to talk about that on this show at some point in time. Uh, but yeah, that was a, um, you know, a real, he started doing really low budget horror or kind of, I guess, cop thriller movies and I think the last thing I remembered him remembered seeing him in was the Delta Force, which which is a, yes another movie we'll have to talk about here. Uh, that's a, a Canon yeah. Films uh, uh, release, but uh, the last time I think major audiences saw him, he was uh, getting blown up from the the tail end of Chuck Norris's motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so exactly and that was 12 years before this movie right and then so, he did this movie and then there he is totally and then yeah, castable was, again was yeah. doing stuff all over the place and, and and you would see him consistently in in film after film and i think the last the last projects he did before he he passed away was uh the twin peaks uh season three and uh with the last season of breaking bad was it he, did he pops that. up in mm-hmm. so he'd, yeah. he'd appear all over the place and just you know finally recognized for being the 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 really solid actor that he is uh interestingly there was a couple of other people up for for the max cherry role uh which were gene hackman that's right the hack yep and our very own favorite paul newman oh now yeah. I wow. I don't know if I could see. I mean, I guess I could see Gene Hackman doing it. I definitely see Paul Newman playing it in a very similar way to to how Forster played the character. But uh, like, I could really see it. I think it would have been a really an amazing role for him to do, and just cool seeing Paul Newman and Quentin Tarantino together. But uh, Forster is an amazing choice too. Just it just would have been alternate reality would have been interesting to see how the two, the Newman one would have worked out. Yeah, I agree. I think with if you cast Newman though, like it becomes a Newman movie, right? And so you know, I, and which is fine, but I don't know. Well, I think I think kind of what whole yeah. Yes, I think no. for me, like on rewatching this. Sorry, John. No, I think I think for me from rewatching this, like it's kind of nice to not have the known actors. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like obviously you got Sam Jackson in there who senses, you know, and he, even leading up to this movie had started to show up everywhere and De Niro, but they're like De Niro is, I love De Niro's kind of just cast as a small part, you know, and it's like, uh, I, it, it doesn't draw too much away from, the performances of Greer and 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 Forrester and the dialogue and that connection and that chemistry. Um, I mean, I think you're right. Newman could have totally done it, but I think that that when you do that, like you're focused more on Newman and less on their connection at that point. And it yeah. seems it seems un, like out of balance, right? Like Newman acting across from Greer versus like Forrester. Like this is meant to be kind of a a platform for Greer, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, if you throw Newman in there, it's not anymore, you know. And it's like it's a, it's just kind of a different chemistry. I think the age gap too would have been a little distracting because he's yeah. significantly older. You know, he's 
Paul Newman was five years older than Sean Connery. So, you know, yeah. uh, like, and, and, and Jackie Brown is supposed to be in her early to mid forties. So 44. Uh, yeah. So uh, I think that would have ultimately he made the total right call. Robert Forster's great. And, and I love the Max Cherry character. He's the bail bondsman who sort of gets kind of hooked into this story, you know, through like just sort of, gets pulled into it, not on his own. It's just, he just gets sucked into it from Ordell. And then he, I, I love the scene where he just first sees Jackie Brown coming out of the, the jail. And, you know, you have that just beautiful, is that the Delphonics? I can't remember if that's the Delphonics or or who that is, that song, but um, just that music cues at just the right moment. And, and he, he's in love with her. Oh yeah. You see a physical change, like, yeah, you know, on his, and, on his face. And he's just got that soft edge with her. Like he really just, he sympathizes with her. Um, maybe he shouldn't, but he does. And he's got a soft spot for her and, and he just wants to help her. Yeah. And I, I think Forrester is the, just the, the right actor at the right time, which that timing is so much of an important part of casting, um, whether you realize it or not when you're doing it. But, uh, Let's talk about um, let's talk about Pam Greer though, our our, yeah. our leading lady here. Well, I've flown over seven million miles and I've been waiting on people for twenty years. And after my bust, the best job I could get was with Cabo Air, which is the worst job you could get in this industry. You know, I make sixteen thousand a year plus retirement benefits that ain't worth a damn. And with this arrest hanging over my head, Max, I'm scared. And if I lose this job, I got to start all over again. And I ain't got nothing to start over with. I'll be stuck with whatever I can get. And that shit is more scary than Ordell. Now, she had she was the queen of the exploitation film of the 70s. And she had, you know, been like the face of it just as much as as Richard Roundtree was for Shaft or, mm -hmm. or Superfly or, you know, any of those, uh, there was a, there was a handful of actors who just appeared in film after film after film. And then we didn't see much of Pam Greer really through the eight. I mean, she was always around, but nothing, no roles of real significance through the eighties right. and, you know, into the nineties. We did see her in escape from LA John Carpenter's Escape from L.A. a year prior to this, but a really small part, fairly, you know, not memorable as it being Pam Greer. Right. And then she, uh, I love the story of when she, you know, Tarantino had reached out to her and was basically giving her the part. And she went into his office and he had behind him all of her movie posters up <laughs> and she was like, oh, or did, did you put those up because I was coming in? And he was like, no, actually, I meant to take them down so you wouldn't see them. But like you, you have to be Jackie Brown. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what she was, she, I mean, she'd obviously, she'd done coffee. And then what was the yep. Foxy, Foxy Brown? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Foxy Brown, uh, Black Mama, White Mama. She, yeah. yeah. There, there's a whole slew of them, but <clears throat> Um, Foxy Brown and Coffee are the big ones. And I think right. in Reservoir Dogs, don't they reference Foxy Brown when they're driving around, when Chris Penn's driving the car? Oh, I think so. That's, I think so. Don't yeah. they name it? I don't know. 
I'm pretty sure they do. Or they talk about Pam Greer. They talk about Pam Greer, but I think they reference Foxy Brown specifically. But um, but maybe it was coffee. But uh, anyway, she uh, just fantastic performance here. You know, it, it's a character, I think, that really spoke to her. And it references a lot of those previous films, um, I think, thematically. And then but also humanizes the character more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's understated in a lot of ways, too. I mean, just that opening scene with her walking through the terminal to try and get to work, you know, like, you know, we find out later that she's carrying a bag of money and smuggling and all that stuff. But like, you know, there's no there's no kind of subconscious reference to it at all. Like she's just like, you know perfectly performing letting letting the audience kind of like just observe her as she's as she's walking through you know and it's like it's kind of an underperformance that that really helps establish kind of her character and it carries through the the rest of the movie you know like i mean there's just a lot of scenes in there where you know she'll be driving and it's just like kind of a camera on her face and you know she's listening to music and it's like you know she's thinking about the different things but like it's not overdone, you mm-hmm. know, it's not overperformed. It's just really well uh, delivered in a subtle kind of nuanced way that, that, you know, may have not been the same as like back in her exploitation movie days. I don't know. Like I haven't seen a lot of those uh, whether or not they're over the top or, or not, but like her performance here is just really solid. Yeah. I love that opening shot. Yeah. I know it is broken up a little bit, but uh, you know, the, where she's just starting nice and slow down that, the, you know, across that escalator and, and the, the across 110th street is, is playing. And a, as the song picks up pace, so does she physically. And, you know, by the end she's running and then the, the song is in full, you know, full momentum, but that also kind of mirrors the, the, the plot and the story of the movie that, you know, it starts out smooth and then everything is just almost like out of control by the end. So, yeah, um, just really, really awesome opening shot. And uh, yeah, Pam Greer is just so fantastic in this movie. And this is really her crowning achievement. Again, she would be in. Oh, she was in Mars Attacks, I think, but earlier this year. So, um, you know, we, we continue to see her in movies, but she'd never reached the height that Jackie Brown uh, gave her. Where's Milton? Well, that's that's what I want to tell you. You see, she was bugging me the whole time. She got pissy with me because I wouldn't let her carry the bag. And then she started running her fucking mouth about, you know, because like, I couldn't remember where the car was parked right away when we came out. So then she got on me about that. Is it this aisle, Lewis? Is it that aisle, Lewis? It's totally fucking with my nerves, man. So what? So, you left her there? I, I shot her. You were talking about De Niro also. Yeah, love De Niro in this movie. <laughs> yeah, the, of all the people that are in this movie, he is the he's kind of this background guy. I yeah, because he's not given a lot of dialogue, right? So you know, he's only given like three really major scenes where he does anything. <laughs> like, and it's like, and and of all the people in the movie, Robert De Niro doesn't need to be in this movie. <laughs> yeah, like, so that's no, the I fun mean, thing. Yeah. He gets like take take. He's the biggest star at the time of this film, and they give him this part. And it's not like the, he's not just the quiet type. He's, the, but he is like, it's just like 
it doesn't even seem like him. Like it's just this weird. Yeah, it's very other guy. Yeah. But, well, but he does Ro- such a good job with it. Yeah, Robert De Niro in '97 too. He's still like one of the top actors, especially respectability-wise in this country. Yeah. You know, I, I think you know there's only two years after Heat and Casino. That was the era where De Niro and Pacino are considered the two greatest living actors. Right. Uh, yeah. So for him to kind of take a s- supporting character like Lewis um, with not that many scenes, definitely not a lot of dialogue, but that fit the character and almost playing like, a comedy character. You yeah. could have found like that. That could have been a part for like sort of an un- a kind of unknown. And then that would have been a career making performance. Right. Like, mm-hmm. just, you know, just, but like it's such an amazing thing to take someone who's so well known and then shrink him down into this part, which obviously you did an incredible job with, you know, you know, you're going to get a great performance out of Robert De Niro. Uh, so th- like, it's just, it's a, it's a great casting choice. It's like, it's keeping yeah. you, you know, I don't know well, if, if, if he was like a nobody on the upswing, everyone would be like, Oh my God, Robert De Niro, he's yeah. back. Like, Oh shit. Like, yeah. But, so was, but he's like the least talked about he's the least worth talking about in the whole movie to be honest like really yeah, yeah. i mean i mean he's it's, good but. yeah it's not that and his character is just the least involved you know he really right. only has one kind of direction and that's well, it yeah and it's i mean it's on brand for for tarantino to kind of break the norm right so i right, mean yeah. like in, in that regard uh it he's consistent there, but I think it is amazing to have someone like De Niro step into that role and be like, yeah, this is awesome. Like, I don't have to, I don't, I don't need the stress of leading the whole thing and have the pressure on my shoulders. I just get to play the, the quiet hothead. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm in. Uh, originally Stallone was supposed to play that part. Yeah. Though, right. Stallone. Oh. I think. So I remember when the movie got announced under, and we'll talk about the Elmore Leonard stuff shortly here but i remember when the movie got announced as rum punch that it was going to star sylvester stallone and i i don't know legally i don't know where if if he was ever signed and then backed out or was offered and turned it down but um it was the lewis character that was what he was going to play what so i I read that he turned it down yeah would have been interesting to see again this is the time of copland which we also covered on the show. You can listen to it in the archives at reconsideration.com. Also starring Stallone and De Niro. But um, yeah, so I think at this point he was trying to look at movies that would give him a little more street cred for, for from an acting perspective. So I don't know, maybe Daylight was just calling his name more than, than Jackie Brown was. Well... In daylight, he got to work with his son, which I'm sure was probably one selling point. Yeah, right? maybe. I don't um, think you find daylight in the in the history books, though. The 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 uh, film. No, you don't. Def- yeah, you definitely don't. They don't study it. <laughs> they they don't. Um, At my film school, we do. We have a class just on daylight. <laughs> daylight. Anything with daylight in it. We look uh, at each class. We look at one minute of the movie. Let's break it down. <laughs> That's it. Hardcore breakdown of the one minute. <laughs> but let me tell you, though, man, you put this bad boy in a flick, every motherfucker out there won't mind. I'm serious as a heart attack. When them Hong Kong flicks came out, every nigga in the world had to have a 45. And they ain't want one. They want two. Because all them niggas want to be the killer. 
But what them flicks don't tell you and what they don't know is that a 45 got a serious fucking jamming problem. Now, I try to steal my customers taught a 9mm because it's damn near the same weapon. It ain't got half the jamming problems. But you know how them niggas is out there. You can't tell them shit. They want a 45. The killer had a 45. They want a 45. Thanks, baby. Mm-hmm. Who's your partner? Mm. Cat named Mr. Walker runs a fishing boat out of Mexico. I get the merchandise to him, he gets it out to my customers on all my bulk sales anyway. Before I set that nigga up, he ain't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. Now, that motherfucker rolling in cash. Got himself a yacht with all kind of high-tech navigational shit on it. Uh, 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 here we go. AK-47, the very best there is. When you absolutely, positively got to kill every motherfucker in the room, except no substitutes. All right, Samuel L. Jackson. So he is probably the most frequent collaborator of Tarantino's, right? I mean, he's appeared in Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, quietly, he's in Kill Bill... One or two? I can't remember which one. He's in. Uh, well, I think I think it. Two. I feel like it's it's two. Okay. He's in two. Uh, he's in Django. He's in The Hateful Eight. I think that's. Yeah, he's not in Inglorious Bastards. Not in Once Upon a Time in, in uh, Hollywood. Um, and obviously not in Reservoir Dogs. But uh, what do you think about his performance as Ordell Robbie here in this movie versus? you know, his other Tarantino roles. Oh man, this is my favorite by far of, really? his, of his parts. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> oh yeah, my kinda, God. I, I agree with David. Holy shit. He doesn't seem like a, like a, not that he was ever over the top, but he just, it's not this like character. You'd never, I feel like I could have met this guy versus every other character, you know, which seems very like caricature character you know um stuff which you know he's very good in but this seems like a real dude sort of but you know i don't know so yeah just absolutely hands down my favorite of all his uh, all his roles yeah i feel like i feel very similar to david i feel like look i like sam jackson in all the movies but i feel like he gets very grandstandy in a lot of the movies and and in this one in particular when he's grandstanding like it's it kind of feeds into the it fits the 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 sense of the character uh, in a way that I think plays really well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I mean, obviously, everybody loves Jules from, from Pulp Fiction, and that is, that is an iconic yeah. character. But this is one that I feel like I can wa- I could just watch him go, and he's such a fascinating person. Uh, it also feels like everybody in this movie, they feel so much more grounded than some of the other Tarantino films, um, or, or most of them really, that they do, yeah, maybe grandstanding is, is a good word for it. They feel so, um, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but maybe theatrical. They're just very, there's, they're a lot. These characters are all yeah. the way he writes and they're very um, high energy and here it feels maybe the most accurate to real people. Yeah. And the way Sam Jackson plays the character that he goes from kind of being like a bro to absolutely frightening and just like the, just snap your fingers and, and he can flip yeah. over like that, that he's absolutely lethal 
um, you know, under the guise of that smile and that friendly demeanor that he can turn on a dime and, and whether, you know, we see him kill or at least attempt to kill multiple friends of his people in his network. And, uh, Dude, just, that, <laughs> that scene with him and Pam Greer, when he's in her apartment and is like that whole cat and mouse, you know, just like turning the light down and like trying having a very civil conversation, but you know, there's, there's cruel intentions that are lying underneath that, you know, and then the, the switch when she catches him, you know, with the, with the gun to the, to the groin, it's like, I mean, it's really on display in that, in that scene, what you're, what you're talking about. And it's, it's great. Is that what I think it is? What do you think it is? I think it's a gun pressed up against my dick. <laughs> well, you thought right. Now take your hands from around my throat. It, it, that's a great scene. I mean, it's one of the best scenes in the movie, but it's so important for both of those characters because, mm. yeah, that, the cat and mouse game. But that's really where we see, you know, up to that point, we only see Jackie Brown as sort of down on her luck, you know, in trouble, quiet, reserved. And then that's where suddenly she's Foxy Brown. Oh, yeah. you're. That's when you know for a fact she's like, she's not playing the victim. Like, yeah. she's like... I'm a strong, independent, going to take care of my business uh, character. And it's fucking great. Yeah. But she's not going to take any shit that, you know, no, that, dude. That take no it's, shit attitude. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. it all, and it all clicks into place. Like her, like when her and Forrester out the night before, whatever, like, or even that evening, I guess, having that conversation over a drink, like she's asking, like, very specific questions and you're just like, Oh, they're having a conversation. Yeah. Yada, yada. And then, and then you get to that next scene and it's like, Oh, like she's, she's clever. She knows what's going on. She's not going to be like taken advantage of here. Like she's going to take control. And yeah, it's great. I mean, she's, she's, she's got a plan and, and that's where we see it start to start to uh, come to fruition that she's planning this whole thing out and is the one pulling all the strings and manipulating. She's taking a lot of chances, but mm -hmm. is manipulating everybody against each other and, and using really everyone to play off of each other. And of course we won't see the full payoff of that till the end of the film, but the whole, you know, the, the MacGuffin here is Ordell's $500,000, right? That he's got invested in what whatever he's got stockpiled in a bank in Mexico that he right. wants to move that money back to the state so he can I don't know if he can retire on five hundred thousand dollars but build his his empire I think really is what he's going to use it to fund um, and he's you know he's mostly an arms dealer but seems like he's involved in drugs and yeah isn't know, he using else. the money to to get more arms yeah. like for a for a deal that he's working on yeah with uh forget the character's name we never meet him he's on he's only on the mm -hmm. phone yeah that's another uh, a faceless character but yeah uh so you know he's using jackie brown as a way to move money back and forth from mexico uh and in the beginning of the film she's caught with how much is she caught with fifty thousand fifty thousand and uh and some drugs some cocaine which she was unaware was in the package so she's sort of caught up in it and now 
we we see in the beginning of the film uh chris tucker with a very you know chris tucker was already huge at this point friday had come out i think so, even fifth element was out already yeah this is a perfect role for chris tucker yeah wow wow short yeah <laughs> like short and sweet i mean you're right i mean and i love chris tucker like in in fifth element i mean you can attest to how many times i probably made you watch that in college but <laughs> Uh, and, and, and as history has gone to, to, as we've progressed with Chris Tucker, like, I think, I think this is a perfect amount. Like he was great as that, as that character, but it's a very small part. Yeah. I, he, he, his character is, uh, Beaumont Livingston, who is Beaumont, one of, that's right. Who is one of Ordell's you know, one of his associates who's been arrested and Ordell is worried that he's going to rat him out. So great. Another great scene of where he, you know, Ordell shows up at Beaumont's apartment and lures him out on, on, you know, a run that they're going to do and talks him into a tr- <laughs> the trunk of his car with a probably loaded shotgun. Yeah. Giving him a weapon. But well, I mean, that's that's how you get his guard down, right? Yeah. Like I'm giving you a weapon. Yeah. So I can't be in this for for nefarious reasons. Like you're helping me with something. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Like, right. but but just get in the trunk. No worries, man. And then that shot is just so great. This that one wide shot where you see yeah. Adele like pull out and he's playing the, again. Brilliant soundtrack there. Pulls out, just drives around the corner. Because they're supposed to drive like to Koreatown, I think, which was 10 yep. minutes away from Hollywood. Yep. But instead goes right into this dirt parking lot and just walks around, opens the trunk and boom, boom, boom. Just very shocking to see an, an actor, a star of that caliber taken out in less than 10 minutes of a movie. Yep. Uh, but yeah, he's starting to, you know, he's. I think as his plan or Dell's plan is to, to grow his business, he's more and more paranoid about who he's, who's working for him and who's loyal and who isn't. So the constant threat is to, to Jackie is, you know, is he going to kill her? Which I think of course he's going to, as soon as he's able, but now that she's after the scene in her apartment, suddenly she's got a plan to get the money here. So now yeah, she's, she's convinced she's convinced him. Yeah. I've got this plan to get your money out of, is it Cabo? Like, where is it in Mexico? I, you know, I don't remember exactly where Cabo. it was, but was it Cabo? Cabo right. Yeah. And so terrible place. Terrible. <laughs> Ugly. Yeah. Not, not any fun there. Yes. Yeah. Stay away from Cabo. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, she like totally turns, turns it around on him yeah, and, absolutely. and makes him a pawn in her plan, yeah. which is, you know, Great. Yeah, which well, is the best. The best well, part ahead, is you don't you don't know that she's got all these machinations going on. Like, you no, know, it almost seems like she's making it up as she goes along, but she's not. Like, really, like it's it's almost a little too subtle. Like, it, she doesn't seem lucky, but it's just like, oh, like by the very end, it's like she planned. You know, she planned it all. Like, it, it all well, worked out the way it needed to. Well, I mean, she tells the plan to Ordell that night in their apartment. We don't see it. But they, they, you know, he does a fade out when she starts, she said, you know, she basically says, this is the plan fade out. But she only, she only tells him half the plan, not the plan where she takes his money and, and runs. Yeah. You know, 
or the entire element of Max Cherry. Oh which, yeah, that's I mean yeah. you can't you can't you can't pull that off if if uh you know you gotta have the the faceless accomplice. Yeah. Which it's amazing that she in that one night with him or just a few hours and him picking her up from prison, stopping for a drink and then bringing her to her apartment that she reads him and I think knows that she's got him hooked already. Yeah. And he sort of allows him. I mean, he doesn't know what she's up to, but I think he's aware that he's let his guard down and he, and he's consciously letting it down. Yeah. Um, what do we think about Mr. Michael Keaton? We mentioned earlier showing up in this movie. This is kind of feels like one of the last big movies that he was in for a while. I don't really remember much else as we got into the, the very end of the 90s and into the 2000s was sort of where he you know, he stopped acting for the most part. He'd pop up here and there, but it wasn't, you know, his big comeback movie was Birdman in 2014. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't doing big movies. He he, he worked every year. He had he had parts every year, but he wasn't doing big Hollywood. Uh, right. He wasn't the leading stuff. man that he was in the you know late 80s and all through the 90s. Yeah. So no, it's nice to see him see a young Michael Keaton kind of back to form. Uh, back yeah, then. played one of the was the a- ATF uh, agents, uh, Ray Nicolette. Yeah, he's the one that yeah. he's just you know he's kind of the troublemaker for Jackie the entire time. Like it's well, well he's yeah, like but... he's kind of the good cop to the other guy's bad cop. Yeah, Michael right? Bowen. Like, yeah, but the, what he's the wait he's not he's he's not really on her side. Like he's trying to well, bust. he's he he's wants do, to get he wants to get Ordell. Like yeah, but yeah. he's not after her. But yeah, he, but he's doing his job really. He's doing you his know. job. He's not really like targeting right, but, her, and he's targeting Ordell and using her. Um, right, but he, I feel like he's playing the nice guy to the yeah. Like the other guy just comes off much more. I'm sorry, you said his name, and I keep calling My, him the Michael Bowen. Michael Bowen. So Bowen. Yeah, Bowen. So he's. He's certainly like kind of the hard nosed, gruff kind of asshole approach, whereas Michael Keaton is like the I'm going to approach it like, hey, let's let's work together. Let's, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's good. He's great, you know, in in, in the role. I I, dude, anytime Michael Keaton pops up, but you're not going to hear me complain. I like Michael Keaton quite a bit, but I like Keaton. I love Keaton. And I, I like how he, you know it's just a character choice, but you know, wearing the leather jacket, almost always having the motorcycle helmet. I think you just, you just learn a lot about the kind of person that he is just, you know, he's, he's kind of like a cool dude who happens to be a cop. And I mean, he really is the one who's the, the leader of the, of his partnership and, and he's driving everything, but he's opting to play the good cop versus Michael Bowen's very bad cop and michael bowen we would see he usually plays real nasty characters he plays a much worse one in kill bill volume one Mm. um and uh you know he also appears in breaking bad towards the you know in the last season and a great actor there too but oh uh, yeah yeah bowen yep but uh, does not show up not that i'm aware of unless all of his scenes got cut i don't think (laughs) michael keynes is in breaking bad but yeah i i I, it's a it's a much smaller character compared to all the others in the film but kind of similar to 
De Niro, but um, I think he did yeah, a great job. I mean, it's another one of those, like, I, again, I think, I think the fact that the supporting cast is made up of such high caliber uh, actors, at least, you know, like with name recognition is, is mm-hmm. pretty awesome. You know, like it's kind of turning, turning it on its head a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, really Keaton is one of the bigger names at this point mm-hmm. and uh, certainly more than Robert Forster. And it's funny that Tarantino took Keaton out and Keaton didn't really want to do the movie, but he took the meeting and, and they went out for drinks and they got wasted on Jägermeister. Yeah. Got him drunk. And then apparently while he was drunk, he, you know, he was in and, uh, and does not, did not remember it, but, but signed on for the movie. So, um, and then there's Bridget Fonda, uh, a part of the legendary Fonda family. Yeah. Jesus. But if you two aren't the biggest pair of ups I've ever met in my entire life, how did you ever rob a bank? Hey, when you robbed banks, did you have to look for your car then, too? No wonder you went to jail. Is it this I Lewis? Is it? I'm a big fan of Bridget Fonda. I think she's great, and this is probably one of her greatest characters. You know, she hasn't... We talked a little bit about her on our, our Simple Plan episode, and yes, you can find that in our archives at reconsideration.com. But, you know, she hasn't acted much in the last, yeah, probably 20 years, really. Uh, but she was very big in, in throughout the 90s, Godfather 3. She's in Point of No Return, Single White Female, uh, you know, Simple Plan, this. Singles, that's a personal Singles, favorite of mine. Yep, yep, yep. Army of Darkness. I mean, she's yeah, she definitely she hit a couple. Role. It could happen to you. Oh yeah, Nicholas Cage, famous classic. Nick Cage, yeah. romantic comedy. Uh, I, I don't know if it's a romantic comedy. It's, it's a, a romance. It's a, it's a light romance. romance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, she's amazing. Her whole family is pretty amazing. But um, she's great in this. Her character is also just kind of. She's a surfer know, girl. Just off, off. Yeah, it doesn't seem to necessarily fit with her surroundings, but, but uh, I think works really well. And, and, you know, obviously that last scene with her and De Niro is um, just great. I mean, yeah. she is just like up his ass, man. I <laughs> give him so much shit. Yeah. Um, it's great, man. Like, I, I think she's, she's really good in this. Yeah. And she's small she's, part, but yeah, you know. but memorable. I mean, she's, yeah. she's also, you know, she's on the the CD for the the soundtrack. Is is, oh, is that right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, just really well done that character, and and I think she has a lot. Even though she's only in maybe what four or five scenes, very memorable in in all of them, and and she just controls it. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, how this, this particular movie got made, um, after Pulp Fiction comes out, Tarantino's a very busy man. I mean, he's writing all the time. He's got, you know, he, not only is he writing his own stuff, but he's, you know, helping Robert Rodriguez produce his films. He's, he's doing rewrites on other films like Crimson Tide and, you know, and The Rock, which we mentioned, you know, uncredited rewrites kind of 
you know, all over the place. He was a, one of the top script doctors in, in town. Um, but he options three Elmore Leonard novels. Now, Elmore Leonard is a crime novelist who had been writing novels for decades already at this point. Uh, he'd had Westerns and things made, you know, as way back in the late 60s and early 70s and, and had so many novels out that had been adapted over the years. But uh, Tarantino options Kill Shot, Freaky Deaky and Rum Punch. Uh, Can I just and, say I, I want to find Freaky Deaky and read that because the name of that book is just <laughs> that was that was your nickname in college, Freaky Deaky. <laughs> um, I think Kill Shot was made into a film in like 2012, um, not by Tarantino. Freaky Deaky, I, I feel like was also adapted at some point, but I could be wrong on that. And it, do you know what it's about? I Freaky no, I, I've never read it. Okay. Um, but Rum Punch, Tarantino optioned it, then kind of walked away from it. And then one night decided to give it one more shot and reread it and fell totally in love with it and chose that as as his next movie, which would develop into into Jackie Brown. Um, the you know, Elmore Leonard was a huge novelist, especially in the mid 90s. You know, Get Shorty came out in 95 out of sight came out just after this in 98 you know all of those are big big movies and i remember yeah. especially i didn't know his name i mean i was only 15 at the time but as soon as get shorty came out like you knew the name El elmore leonard suddenly it was was everywhere well, i mean even people like people who love tv the tv show justified is is mm -hmm. from his, oh. his yeah. stuff so yeah i mean he's all over the place in in entertainment yeah to this day yeah yeah uh and this is the, I think we mentioned it earlier, this is the only true adapted uh, screenplay by Tarantino. This is the only film that he did not write himself sort of from scratch where, you know, The Hateful Eight and, and Inglorious Bastards may have been based on other things, right. but they weren't an actual like novel that he was fully just adapting. And and he stayed fairly loyal to, to um, Elmore Leonard's story. He changed some details. He moved it from Miami to to L.A. to give it really that Tarantino stamp and all the areas he's familiar with. He changed the big change he did was change uh, Jackie Burke to Jackie Brown and right. change her race from, you know, she was a white character in the novel. Now she's a black character in, in the film, which is such a big change um, and so important and in going into the whole Pam Greer, you know, movement here. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I have not, I have the book, I have not read it, but now, now I want to, I should have read it for this, but who has the time? Have you, how long have you had that book? Did you have that when we were in college? I feel like I had it in college. Yeah. <laughs> maybe and time I've, to pick it up and <laughs> get through it. I'm I've just sat, saying. I've maybe. sat on it for uh, a little bit. <laughs> is, is this, is, is, this one, uh, one that this movie exists in the Tarantino universe, or is this one of the movies in the Tarantino universe? So here's the thing about Jackie Brown. Let's let's since since David brought it up, let's talk about the QTCU. Let's we got to the Quentin yeah. Tarantino cinematic universe. Jackie Brown is the one that feeds into that the least. There's really not a big connection. The connection is actually quite small. 
and it is the 1980 Honda Civic that Jackie Brown drives in the first part of the film, that little white car that she's driving around. That's the same car that Bruce Willis uh, is driving in Pulp Fiction. And it shows up, it shows up in Kill Bill. That car shows up in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I believe. No, no, it wouldn't have shown up in that, actually, uh, since it came out after. But uh, yeah, Kill Bill, it shows up in as well. Hmm. So that's like the one little link there. So that's a no. I'm going to go, that's a no. <laughs> yeah, it's not really connected like the other ones are. But But all of his other films are either linked to each other or they are movies that take place within that universe so like so Kill right Bill, which one's this which one's this this would be a probably a movie in the universe right no this is i i no, i would say if anything it would exist in that universe but it's just so loosely connected to it yeah kill bill is the kill movie bill, that, that uma thurman yeah kill bill is the pilot that the pilot, yeah. The pilot that Uma Thurman is talking about in Pulp Fiction that she had done. Ketchup. Yeah. And then movies like From Dust Till Dawn would be movies that the Tarantino universe characters would watch. So it doesn't exist in... Right. Yeah. So, yeah, but like, isn't Inglorious Bastards, like, that's that's a movie in that? universe it could be yes but also there's characters within that yeah there's characters within that, that so, are oh they're related the yeah donnie donowitz who's eli roth's character his grandson would be uh the film producer in true romance and also brad pitt's character in inglorious bastards would be the father of <laughs> brad pitt's character in once upon a time in hollywood and the grandfather of Brad Pitt's character in True Romance. That's all. That's all the <laughs> discussion that's out there. All right. I guess I don't care anymore. <laughs> Never oh, mind. But it's, I, I think it's great. I mean, you t you talk about you know Marvel's probably the only other major franchise that connects all their characters and they link and you know one movie you know takes sure. place but the and... difference the difference between those are that like I feel like in the Tarantino universe like these are all just like fun little easter eggs yes you know yeah whereas like the mcu their plot devices and you know sure there's yeah. not a movie there's not a marvel movie that's a movie that that tony stark would watch that we also <laughs> like there's not one of those yeah um, yeah I, I mean it's all completely unnecessary like you don't need to know about it it's just yeah. some of those things that he just cute. peppers in it is it's, it's just cute, cute. yeah, yeah. It doesn't cool. matter. I, I, I'm on. I'm asking because, like, what's the canon and what's the? I don't give a shit. Yeah. But like, you know, and I know it's not really even an intention, but the a a, a thoughtful reading of the. This is material. also. This is also, I think, the only movie that Tarantino's done where he does not have a cameo. Right. Although he did write the Ordell Robbie character. Yeah, it was supposed to be him. Yeah, yeah, that he was supposed to play that part. He is the voice he of the answering it. machine. Though. He is the voice of the answering You're machine. Right. That's yeah. right. Yes. Which is 100%. hilarious. That cracked me up. That just <laughs> when I heard it, I was like, shit, that's Tarantino. I yeah. was like, that's where he got in. He's very charming on screen. You can't really deny he's very good. It's 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 odd that he's good on screen. He's he's gotten better, you know, when he yeah. he's his 
Pulp Fiction kind of jumps out of me as just yeah. not the greatest performance. He's better in other movies. Like he's better in From Dust Till Dawn. He's probably better Dust in Reservoir Dawn. Dogs. He's 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 working with George Clooney and he's like he keeps up with them the whole yeah. time. They're a great partnership. It's yeah. amazing. But I guess yeah. there's a lot of whimsy to the both of them. You know, mm-hmm. like sure. I, like both of them are highly intelligent and really funny. Yeah. And then the characters are that <laughs> like, you know, Dude, I haven't watched that movie in so long. Oh, that movie China. blew my mind. I think I'm just still done. Yeah. Of, really? I didn't know what it was. Like, I, I, I knew I was renting like a sort of a vampire movie. And then I forgot the first half. Like, I'm watching the first half of it. And I'm just sort of invested. I forgot, like, it was supposed to have this horror element. And then it, it turns from one movie into another. And I yeah. was just oh my god yeah yeah <laughs> great I've, I've never seen anything like this this is amazing <laughs> i just loved it yeah i love i loved it i thought clooney was great oh. I, I love the, the 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 right turn the movie makes halfway through we should yeah. we should definitely look at from dust till dawn sometime for sure and like i remember seeing bloopers like george clooney just can't he's in like i don't know he's in a convenience store he blows his line a thousand times yeah, yeah. and it's like boy they're really they, they really got to get this line in like they I mean, I, you know, he's an, <laughs> you got to get it right, but it's just funny. Like he just keeps blowing his lines and I'm like, just move on guys. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> I don't know. That's funny to me. Um, so it would have been interesting if Tarantino had played Ordell because that, that sort of leads into, you know, the other side of Tarantino and, and part of what, um, myself and I think a lot of other people have a hard time with as, as time's gone by and, and the way he consistently stays with, with some of uh, how he treats a couple of things, race and how he handles the treatment of women in his films. And, you know, as much as I love this movie, this is, you know, they use the N word 38 times in it. And just think about most of that is actually from Samuel L. Jackson. I think if not all of it, uh, The but think about that if it was Tarantino who swears that he is Ordell Robbie, like he has said that many times that yeah, that character is him, and he's throwing that word around. I, I mean, how do you guys feel like the way he handles race, um, and specifically that word? You know, how do you view that now? I, I don't think he has a um, I don't think he has a malicious intent in his heart about any of it but boy does he love using it like he loves Mm -hmm. that word um because of the power of what that word can do you know especially like throwing that around in like a a movie that probably you know in films that i think appear appeal to a a wider audience but a white audience for sure enjoys a quentin tarantino movie so he gets sort of the he gets the best of both worlds right like he's got Mm -hmm. respected actors who who will say this, you know, he'll use it and it's supposed to have a specific, specific impact. He's not just lazily writing it. He's supposed, he's trying to have an impact, I think, you know, and I think, you know, if coming out of Samuel Jackson's mouth, you know, Ordell, that sounds like to me is that sounds like a Hollywood black character talking. I don't, you know, I don't know (laughs) necessarily if it's accurate. I think that that kind of hits what you know, I don't, th- you know, I don't think it's a weird caricature or anything, but I mean, I, I will never forget a, a, a joke I saw probably on Twitter or Facebook or something. I was like, you know, I had a dream I was starring in a, it was a woman, white woman. And it was like, I had a dream I was starring in a Tarantino movie and he, it was just him uh, stepping on my neck and calling me the N word <laughs> half the time. I'm like, 
yeah, it's pretty good. Like it's a sh- <laughs> so anyway, uh, just you know that kind of that kind of rings true in a in a in a joking sense. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, I I think his there's two different schools of thought with it. Either way, like I feel uncomfortable hearing it as much as we do in his films, sure. but there's sort of Tarantino's reason for doing it versus, you know, Spike Lee's sort of counterattack to it. And you have Sam Jackson sort of in the middle of both directors, but Tarantino argues that he uses it to devalue the word and make it. He, of course, like he's not using it with the intention that that negative intention that comes with it. It's sort of becoming like almost like a regular curse word almost you know that that he the more you use it the less power it has now spike lee's point of view is like yes but you use it so much that that word now becomes that not everyone feels that way and not everyone's comfortable with it and you're just throwing it out there constantly like too much spike lee uses it Mm -hmm. that word but not to the level tarantino does right yeah i don't know i i mean i haven't it does not offend me when it's used in his movies it doesn't offend me when it's used in any movie unless it's in the movie to be offensive if that makes sense Mm -hmm. right and so like i don't know like and i don't know if that's just a like i understand why we shouldn't use that word uh so i get why spike lee is i get spike lee's argument but i also understand tarantino's argument when i was younger i read a book that I won't say the name because we're not, you know, it's the N word, but you're mm-hmm. not supposed to, but I read this book and it like, it's by a lawyer who really says exactly that same argument. You know, it's the, you're giving the power to the word mm-hmm. when you, when you shy away from it, but I understand okay. the history and I understand that you shouldn't, but I also grew up in a really diverse part of, of Texas outside Houston. And it's like, you know, as young kids, not thinking about all of that, like, you know, like we had plenty of friends that would use that word all the time as like a social greeting, you know, like not with negative connotations or, or anything like that in mind. So like just the use of the word, um, you know, like, I, I guess I'm just, I'm used to hearing it used in, in non derogatory ways that, mm-hmm like sure. kind of make it desensitized to me. But again, like I understand, like, dude, that's a word that you don't use. And, you know, I think in storytelling, like you write a line, you know, and it's like the way that you language things and the way that you, you use words is intentional. And, you know, like, are there better ways to do it? Probably uh, every single time you could do a different approach, you know, but um you know, I think that this is part of Tarantino's sort of, sort of bag. And you like, at this point, you know what you're getting into. Like, it's likely that word is going to be used somewhere in there. Um, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and I think some people find it really offensive for totally legit and understandable reasons. And some people are less offended by it, you know, and, and it's, you know, kind of a mixed, a mixed uh, deal. I just, it's not my word. So I can't, you know, I don't think I could even write that for a, 
a person of color to speak <laughs> like you know what i mean like I, you know it's just fun to I'd rather <laughs> like if I were to be writing something with characters, I mean, you know, I mean, but I don't know if that's like, uh, that's going too far o- over the sensitivity of it. Like, I mean, if I were to try to write a character of that nature, I mean, obviously Tarantino can, he has an understanding of character of, of all kinds. So I don't, you know, but a white dude writing a script, giving that, putting that word in a black character's mouth, um, uh, you know, I don't know. I can't. I can't say. Obviously, people that work that work with him have had no problem. You know, and I think it was like there's an anecdotal story of like how Jamie Fox like tried to just tell DiCaprio like I, I think it was. I don't remember the story, but it was just sort of like you, you're you you're supposed to say this. Like that's you know you're not <laughs> like this is your character kind of thing. And and Django. So yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like from just my background, like there's more of a social awareness as to like why that word shouldn't be used. And, you know, and so like, again, even though that I feel like because it was used cat, <coughs> excuse me, casually when I was younger, you know, like I would never use that word, you know, to your point, David, like. I would never use it. I think there's smarter ways to, or different ways to, mm-hmm. to kind of communicate and, and, and uh, sell the same intention, you know, without needing to use that word. But, but again, like, I think, I don't know, you know, I, like it doesn't necessarily bother me in the movies either. Well, there's, you know, I, I don't know if it's in the same special, the Chris, one of Chris Rock's bits of just like, Oh, white 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 guys love those rap songs. They love singing the rap songs, and they they can't wait to say the word when they say it with a song. They're singing with it, and like and all of that. And then also like, and then Chris, I think uh, you know that one HBO special where he's just like, "All right, I'm gonna tell all you white people the one time you can say it, the one time." And he's like, "Get okay," and everybody's getting ready. They're rubbing their hands together. What is it? And it's such an it's such a fantastic joke. Of like the one time a white person can say it, uh, and so I'm not going to repeat it because it's too good of a joke to to to, yeah. to mangle. Um, and uh, and you know that again, that's all stand up. That's that's all humor. But I I've definitely as a kid, I said it casually because we a suburban white kid like listening to this music that I didn't really understand and anything like that. I wasn't using it derogatorily. I was using it kind of. Like, like, yeah, you're saying a casual, same way you're saying Brent, like, so, um, but I had learned quickly at a certain point, like, that's not your word, you know, but, you know, I grew up with other words too. And like, the thing is like, yeah, they shouldn't be used in, as insults, but it, it's like, I know it's almost, it's almost like I could, I don't mind saying them out loud to say, yeah, I used to say this word and that word. And I know it's like, but maybe but not, it should but be not used. with the n-word <laughs> you know yeah, like never say the n-word yeah <laughs> like it's that's like an off-limits word and uh, yeah. you know again like maybe those other words should be off-limits too but i think they probably should be but i think we all have just been like made aware of a heightened sensitivity to that word for for from like a for an extended period of time you know and it still gets used and i understand why people do why people some people still find it jarring but yeah, yeah there's so, there's something is, weird i don't know what it is like if we were having a just a frank discussion 
you know, offline together, I probably would, I still would never say the actual N word. Right. right. But I'd be like, yeah, but I used to say R word and actually say that out loud. And I'd mm-hmm. say the F word and say that out loud. Right. Cause like, it's just, it's a little more like, but I think to me, it's like, it doesn't that those words don't have centuries of, of right. context to them. So, and like, it's just slightly just like it's beyond. So those other words are like within the last 15 years, they became words to not use. Whereas the other one, like our whole lifetime was, it was never okay. You know, right. Like can't, can't hardly wait. Uh, you know, I think, uh, that the one, there's the one yeah. scene toward the end where the joke is like, all, like the guy's humiliating himself and just someone calls him the F word. Yep. And I, it's goddamn funny. And it's not like, and it's not a good joke. I, it's still funny. Like, yeah. and it's not a good joke, it's just, but same thing, Bill and Ted, they use it liberally in that movie mm-hmm. once or twice, all over, all not over funny. the eighties, all yeah. over the eighties. Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, and, and if there is a moment that that word makes one person, one kid want feel uncomfortable, I don't want that person to hear it. Yeah. Like it's not worth, I want to be able to say it. Like, why do you want to be able to say it? And especially white people who say that about the N word, like, yeah. well, why do they get to say it? And I can't, it's like, well, why do you want to say it? Like what, why do you want to say it? Is it just because it's something you can't have or do you really want to say it? Because it feels like a fucking curse word <laughs> saying F U C K that that's a powerful, like, uh, F, you know, you, there's, there's something to curse words that have a, you know, a, an endorphin rush to them, but to use that word is like a little, that's, that's there's a lot that comes with that. There's word. too much there, yeah. but boy, yeah. like, what do you, what's the rush for you to want to say that based well, on everything, you know, and, and Sam Jackson actually defended the use of it because he felt, you know, he grew, he has said that he grew up with that word so much and hearing it so often that it, it again, that word also got devalued for him. Yeah. And that in the world of these movies, that this, that's a word that a lot of these characters would use. So he sort of viewed it as being true to those characters that sure. they would, they would throw that word around regardless of whatever, that whether they're white or black or what, but um, it's something that hasn't really gone away in his movies. And I think I, I don't see Tarantino really change shifting gears on that, but uh, yeah, definitely jumped out to me this time. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't also don't, uh, sorry, David, but I was just going to say, I also don't think it's in every single one of his movies, right? Like, Mm-mm. I mean, he's not using it in Inglorious Bastards. He's not using no. it in like Kill even... Bill. No, but it, the ones it's in, it's in like a lot. 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's not like he's just throwing it in to throw it in. You know what I mean? Right. Like, What's the count it's... in Django? It's probably 100. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that's got to be 1,000. Yeah, it's got to be high. But I don't think it's in Hollywood at all. No, no, no. But are there any black characters even in Hollywood? Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, so, sure. There yeah. is one or two, I think. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so that's one thing that, that you know, stood out for me. Also, you know, again, we talked about it before, but the the treatment of women in his films, he sort of has this Madonna, Madonna and the horror complex, right? That he will take one woman and hoist her up to like a God level. And the rest are just 
you know, totally, you know, terrible things happen to them, whether they're abused or they're drug addicts or they're prostitutes or they get killed or beaten up. You know, you've got Uma Thurman is would be the Madonna. You've got Pam Greer is the Madonna. You've got um, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you've got uh, Margot Robbie as as the Madonna care, you know, actor. But then the rest, it's like all negative things happen, you know, that like here we've got Bridget Fonda's character is just a complete nag, you know, you know, a a drug sort of like, I mean, it seems like it's just pot, but, you know, constantly doing drugs, um, just overall a, a generally negative character who's unlikable and then just nag somebody to the point of killing them or to, to the point of making them kill her. And then the other character, Sharonda, uh, played by Lisa, Lisa Gay Hamilton, is just like a poor drug addict that, that Ordell Robbie is just using. Yeah. Then- you know, juxtaposed with ja- Pam Greer's Jackie Brown, who is the smartest, the coolest, the, the best, you know, just the, the ultimate of everything. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, th- that's true. But I also think like not every woman in his movies can be leads, right? Like, and the ones that he holds up on the pedestal, they're the leads. Like they're the heroes of the, of the story. I don't think that the women in the movies that like the Sharondas and stuff, they're not the only ones that are having horrible things done to them, you know, or or have some kind of plight in the storytelling. Sure. Right? Like but when do we see a female in a Tarantino movie? And and maybe there is. I'm just I'm not recalling it this second, but when do we see a female with without some kind of like major negative you know cl- cloud with them? You know, even a small character like like uh Roseanne Arquette in Pulp Fiction. Again, another character who's a, a nag. She's yelling at Eric Stoltz. She's generally sort of this negative character, right? Maybe the child actor in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Sure. Yeah. She was like, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. But I mean, but yeah, it's, there's always like a brutalization to these, the women that are not the heroines. The right. Heroes. I mean, it's, it's, it's really apparent in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that you know, the cult of women who are following Charles Manson around and then the graphic violence that happens to them at the end of the film. Yeah. And um, like Brad Pitt's character, it wasn't shown in the movie, but it's, he wrote it like he, that character murdered his wife mm-hmm. <laughs> and because it seemed, because the eyes she as depicted, she's just kind of this shrill, like annoyance. Right. Yeah. I, I think I don't yeah. really remember. Yep. But no, absolutely. So like, so Brad Pitt's character is an actual, murderer and and in the book i think that's proven i mean it's i think acknowledged in the book more than it is in the movie yeah yeah you it's it's up it's a question mark in the movie you You don't know that's in that's in once upon a time yeah Mm -hmm. you know reservoir dogs it opens with you know talking about madonna and sex and you know incest and and right and and (laughs) like all of that right off the bat and then there's no more women in the movie Right. Pulp Fiction, you've got Uma Thurman, who's the, the, the god-like character. And then, 
you know, and then there's a few others uh, throughout, like Rosanna or Kat. But yeah. um, so anyway, that's just you know, even we we see also in uh, in, in even in Glorious Bastards with um, oh my god, I forgot the character's name, but at the who runs the movie theater, who's sort of the you know more powerful of the female characters, but then oh right, know, yes. the, the other one, but both female leads you know, get brutally murdered in the movie. So they never can seem to, uh, you know, have a happy ending other than the, the lead. So. And, and Jackie Brown, it's surprising that not a character, like a character doesn't have a monologue about, let me tell you about the wizard of Oz. And this is what happened when they made the wizard of Oz. And this actor did this. And this is what really was happening. Like, you know, that seems like, which is typically what happens in these movies, in all of his movies. Yeah. Here's some pop culture stuff that (laughs) I'm going to bring into you. And it's particularly about movies and I love movies, 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 movies. Here you go. Here's a movie. I love talking about movies. (laughs) At least this was a little more uh, music based um, without being aggressive. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know. Those are those are big things that are ongoing, like issues with Tarantino. I'm not the only one who feels that way. That's definitely it's out there as as you know the the negative side of his films. That depends on the movie how big of a problem that is or not. So what's the solution for that? Like I mean, if other people are saying it, like what? Like I, I write female characters that fucked up shit doesn't happen to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, like look at Kurt Russell's wife in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Small part, but what is she? She's a nag. She's yelling at him. She's she doesn't want Brad Pitt around. She's just on Kurt Russell's ass. So it's just something that is very common throughout his movies. I don't know. Just I I don't know. I'm not writing these movies, so I don't have a character in mind. But like you can be a cool character like some of the men are right without being the lead of the movie right but i mean all those characters are flawed as well you know like there's not a character in his movies that's not flawed in some way sure yeah but the women so, seem to be always on the receiving end you know yeah that, that i mean i don't i don't i don't like, disagree but i also you know like i understand that this is like a, an issue uh but i don't know that i necessarily i don't know yeah i mean i understand that it's an issue i guess i i can't say that i necessarily agree i mean all these a lot of these characters are so colorful anyway so but it seems like maybe the the lady characters are either like are them done or the horror kind of thing i mean i think it's it's there's not like a sort of a basic i I, uninteresting character for me, like it's like I think that he has a lot of really powerful women characters in his movies, like more so than a lot of other directors do. And so, like I get the you know the the discrepancy there, but at the same time, like all the characters are flawed. Uh, most of the men characters are flawed as well. It's not like violence is just specific towards the women. Like you know, you talk about the ladies that come in at the end of uh uh once upon a time in hollywood and like there's a dude there that also gets his ass chewed up you know what i mean like i mean it's so i get it like i understand like but i also feel like he does a lot of characters that are that are strong female leads that like 
don't, you know, like happen very often either. So like, it's, it's I don't know. A, it's a real dichotomy that it just feels to me and, and I think to others out there that, that the aggression against the female characters comes with a lot of, there's more anger to it than even, yes, like, of course, there's tons of male characters that get killed, um, you know, through all of his movies as well. But it just feels like an extra bit of resentment with the with the, the female deaths. There's, I mean, yeah, I mean, this some... is a slippery. This is a slippery one. Like, I, 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 t- I totally get it. It's they're brutal. I think that the ones on the men are just as brutal. Though I just think that we as a society react to it happening to women differently than we do to men. Sure. But yeah. hey, that being said, like I, you know, like I don't like to see any of that shit. But from a storytelling standpoint, all the flawed characters have bad shit happen to them throughout oh, sure. many of his movies. I think that his lead characters, men and women, are in a lot of cases also flawed i would say that in a lot of cases if you watch his movies the characters that are least flawed in most of his movies are female lead characters like if if you were to look at the the run of for of the characters. female leads yeah, yeah. Prob- probably yeah so i mean i get it like again i know it's a very sensitive topic and i'm not trying to in any way like underplay it because i know that it is something that is talked about, you know, yeah. but I just feel, it's, I feel right. a little different about it. Like, the, the, but I the, don't feel that it's not like, I think if you ask a lot effective. of women, they, they would, they would object to the way they're portrayed, but. Cause the men to female ratio in all his movies is like eight to one at best. Yeah, but, sure. You know, like, so there is sort of like a certain men can be, I mean, again, they're all like big characters in a way, but you know, and there's a lot of brutality against men, but that's sort of expected with, there's so much violence against men, men on men violence in countless movies. Well, I mean, and it's intentional, you know, like, I mean, when it happens, it's intentional. Like it's meant to create a reaction. Right. You know what I mean? Because as a society, it is much harder to see that kind of brutality to a woman than it is a man, just because we've been desensitized to it happening to, to men, you know, like, I mean, I just, whatever, like, I, but I it, think, but it's even funny. Cause it's like Uma Thurman's got a sword and she, uh, she like is just absolutely brutal to yeah. Vivica Fox, Daryl Hannah, uh, everybody, Lucy Liu, but yeah, I know, but I know, but it's just sort of, I get it. It's like a, it's a revenge flick. It's a whole, it's a whole, it's its own thing, but it's like, he gets, he gets to have it all now. It's like, <laughs> yeah. gets brutalized. I don't know. It's fine. Which is, it's, you know, you couldn't do kill bill with a male lead and do the same brutality. Well, yeah, but no you way. mentioned it. You, you look at the percentage of men to women, the ratio, you know, it, it's very lopsided. So yeah. It's yeah, not that it's it's just it's it i think it's it's probably it just has to be noted it has to be talked about to say that it's a overarching like flaw in his storytelling or whatever is it's fueled debates but i don't think there's a definitive answer so no. that's why yeah, that's I, why we're always going to all come down on a different level of agreement well i yeah, mean i agree i agree that it's there but yeah. i mean like i also feel like you know like 
it's in line with everything else that's happening in his movie. I don't think that he's like, I don't know that it's necessarily like shining a light on one thing unless it's intentionally meant to create a, a reaction, which I do think is the case sometimes yeah. for sure. One thing that you can argue about that he loves is women's feet. That's true. It and is. I was never more obvious than in this movie with Bridget Fonda's toes right in your face. I was like, oh, yeah, that's he does like feet. That's a happening. Yeah. I mean, what I think the first because we see it in Pulp Fiction, not that, you know, not that crazy in that movie, but we see it again. And from dusk till dawn, we see it here in jackie brown we we see it a couple times in jackie brown i don't know if it's the same scene or not but i'm like she like you see her bridget fonda's feet like front and center opening of the scene and then she's like towing de niro's yeah uh drink Drink. at one point yeah i'm just like oh yeah this is for sure yeah and then in once upon a time in hollywood obviously it's a big thing and yeah uh yeah that's uh Clearly, clearly, there's a thing there. But Uma Thurman trying to get her paralyzation to wear off, and it's her. But yep. she's trying to exercise yeah. the foot, yeah. um, which is not less. It's not exactly sensual, like or you know, this like feet. But no, like, but it's there. But in yeah, I mean, so th- I mean, that's why that joke of like, <laughs> I was in a Tarantino. I mean, he's just he's jo- he's choking <laughs> me with his foot. <laughs> and, like uh, like yeah, it's pretty. That's that's pretty good. Um. Uh, but can I just say it was nice to see real ice in a real glass uh, for a, in a movie. You know, I watch a lot of TV now. You know, the fake ice. Yeah. What's with the props, guys? <laughs> What's not, with the not fake quite ice? The same. What's with the fake ice, guys? You know, so, it doesn't float. So why are you put pouring the water level over the level of the ice? What are you doing? Why that, does not do that? That's where they get the fake ice from. The fake ice guys. I'm so mad at the the, the prop guys. Yeah. What are they doing? Where where are we? Are we going to pretend like this is what ice does? So, yeah, what's really... with this this fictional world where ice doesn't melt in glasses? Come it get, not, get, get not, real. It's not even that it doesn't melt. It doesn't float. You, you put it yeah. on. Yeah. They put a half a glass of ice in, and then they film the they fill the quote unquote uh, you know Rhode Rhode Island iced tea. What's one? What do you call that? Long Island iced Long tea. Long yeah. Iced tea. They fill that up. And then there's there's like What's three not, of liquid. not in the not in the QTCU right like it's all real ice in the QTCU. there's real ice there that's what I'm talking what's about what's a what's a Rhode Island iced tea Rhode Island iced tea's got some Hershey syrup in it <laughs> not, that's not a Pennsylvania iced tea that's not, <laughs> um, yeah God just it was nice to see some fresh ice let me just tell you. yeah always refreshing throwback to the old days of Hollywood. <laughs> when all there um, was was realized before they cracked the fake ice code yeah oh. <laughs> so what That's other were there That's Dave's what, rant for the week <laughs> were there uh, were there any other stylix, stylistic differences between Pulp Fiction and this I, I, I feel like overall the, the tone of the movie is just and the pace the whole style overall is just slower more methodical. We're not jumping around stories. You know, the, the story is basically linear, right? I mean, we do see a little bit of, let's go back and see that scene again from a different point of view, which I think he does, you know, masterfully. But I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Do you think that there's, do you prefer the, the Pulp Fiction style where we, 
move throughout kind of a timeline or the more straightforward Jackie Brown approach? What do you think is more effective? I like a straight narrative, but you know, I don't know. It's different. I don't know. I, I, I don't think I would want to see this flashing back and forth. And yeah, I don't know, because it's like, you got to see Jackie do this and you don't want to have to prove that she's clever by interesting flashbacks. Like, no, she's just doing it. So that's kind of me, but I don't know. I agree. I mean, I think it served the purpose for Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs that they were, it was so fresh and new to see it used that extremely mm -hmm. um, really worked great in those. And we see it less in, in his more modern films and started with Jackie Brown. I think we'll talk about, you know, when the movie's released and what the reaction is, but I think that's part of why is that people were expecting that high stylization and you got less of it here. Um, I like the amount that they do that. It's basically you're walking a straight line, stepping off a little bit here and there to, to replay a scene from, you know, specifically the shopping bag scene, right? Where we, right. we see it from Jackie's point of view. Then we see it from uh, De Niro and Bridget Fonda's point of view. And then we see it from uh, Max Cherry's point of view. Yeah, that works. I think yeah. by necessity, like yeah. that's a it's a fun way to do it, or and and it and it and it has the most impact without it being like a clever game of what went what really went on. Mm -hmm. right. You don't want to Ocean's Eleven that you know, which yeah. let's talk about Ocean's Eleven now. That's <laughs> that's some nonlinear storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, that's exciting stuff. I love that. I, look at how clever those guys are. Just like being in hotel suites and eating eating, <laughs> eating nuts eating, and eating fancy fancy uh yeah. room oh, service yeah. like here we go in our tuxedos and we're just there's crazy. not a single scene in that movie where brad pitt's not eating something I know, like, right? it's every it's almost every scene he's like yeah i well, just watched all three of those that's kind of his bag across film is what is they, it they people point out that he eats a lot in other movies but i think also denzel does the same mm. So oh, okay, I have noticed with Denzel. These people point, you know, they're once you once you loop them all together in like one big thing, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. that's a lot of eating. But like, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. But this movie, I think, is it, Jackie Brown is. I think it's less complex than than Pulp Fiction was, but that doesn't mean it's any less quality. No, 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 not at all. I would even say at this point in my life. I find Jackie Brown better than Pulp Fiction. Like Agreed. I think it is a more quality movie than, nice. than Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah all right. Like, I, I feel yeah. like I need to be in the mood to watch Pulp Fiction, but Jackie Brown to me is a movie I can just put on, you know, yeah. and it, and it'll put me in a mood, you know, like in a good play. Like it's like it's just it's a like it's a good sandwich, you know, <laughs> really good sandwich. You just there's always room for it. Can always eat a sandwich. <laughs> just what a kind really of sandwich? Good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, the soundtrack for this this movie is is just absolutely stellar. I, I think this is, uh, of course, Reservoir Dogs is great. Pulp Fiction became an absolutely huge soundtrack. I mean, who yeah. di who didn't own the Pulp Fiction soundtrack? David, did yep. you have it? No, I did. Of course, you didn't. David, you you shock me every day. I didn't see the movie until 
the 2000s. I didn't see the movie, but I had the soundtrack for some reason. All right. <laughs> I don't know. Because everybody, you had every soundtrack. I didn't buy music. I didn't buy movies. That's yeah. true. I wasn't buying music. I didn't buy music. I listened to the radio. Yeah. I mean, but Tarantino, like his movies always have like very, like, I don't want to even say obscure, but like unique and good. Like the, the music is always really fascinating yep. and, yeah. and fun to listen to in the film and outside the film. Like it always kind of keeps drawing you in. I mean, oh, I feel yeah. like that for most, I mean, I'd have to. He's a, he's a connoisseur of media of film yeah. and film and, and art and, and all of that. And he takes, the stuff he likes that uh, like, you know, and lots, most of that is not mainstream. And he, he remixes it and reuses it and finds the actors he likes. I mean, he does, you know, he takes, he takes from the best for, for what he considers the best. So, yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many good tracks though, across 110th street and, and Oh, even long time woman, which is sung by Pam Greer when she's in in prison. That was, I think, that was, I can't remember if that was actually from Coffee or from one of her other films in the seventies. But, uh, you know, Street Life is is a great one. Midnight Confessions is is used in a really cool way here. Uh, just the whole soundtrack is really is really just stellar. This is probably probably also my favorite. Uh, Tarantino soundtrack. This and I love Reservoir Dogs too. Yeah, I was gonna say Reservoir Dogs is really hard, really yeah. hard to top. I remember this getting the, getting that and like I would always have a friend borrowing it, and it was always a struggle to get that CD back. I mean, I know John, you like to put the lime into coconut <laughs> for sure. That's me. Um, one other, you know, creative element is uh, Sally Menke's editing style just really helped shape his movies, his early films. I think Inglorious Bastards was the, was that one the last one? Yeah, Django was the first one uh, after she she had sadly passed away. Um, but there's a big, I think, visual difference between the everything up through Inglorious Bastards and the way it kind of flows together. And she just, it was like she knew Tarantino's brain and like they were sort of a great director and, a, and you know teaming with a great editor is it's such so important for the structure of a film that yeah. i think she was a big just like thelma schoonmaker with scorsese and and um steven spielberg uses the same you know handful of editors for every movie um so I think that was a real key element, and and the movies since then I think were they're very hit and miss. You know, they're some of his least like ones between Django and Hateful Eight, and um, where I think the Grindhouse was a, a the you know the Grindhouse film that he did. I can't remember if Sally did that one. I don't, I don't think she did, but uh, so I don't know. There's a big difference between the the Sally Mankey years and the not Sally years. She did the uh, death proof part. Oh, of it. she did do death proof. Yeah, and I have to be honest, I haven't actually seen death proof. Uh oh, and, yeah, it's Whoa. got Kurt in it too. So that I'm our big boy. Double the hell are you, what the hell are you doing, man? <laughs> Looks like I got a homework assignment. Mm. Once upon a time in Hollywood seemed to have kind of that same, I don't yeah. know, reminiscent kind of rhythm and. Well, that was structure. the whole. 
part of, I think what, you know, David and I talked about it, what, what attracted us to that movie so much was, was it coming back to sort of his roots of what worked in Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown, really that a little more slower pace, a little more subtle, not so, you know, as, I mean, it's Tarantino, so subtle is not really his bag, but uh, just not as um, intense as Hateful Eight and Django were and, and just bringing it, dialing it back down a bit. Yeah, Hollywood yeah. had a, a lot of traveling scenes like this movie did, a lot mm-hmm. of traveling. <laughs> that yeah. was that was your takeaway, it was too much, <laughs> so way too much traveling in Hollywood. Yeah. So. Just get from A to B, just get there. This this one I think might be might have worked better. I think Jackie Brown worked better with the traveling. Yeah. Um, you know, the big thing that, that my big takeaway from this movie though, ultimately, is I really miss mall culture. Mall culture, yeah. Yeah. Miss the malls. Well, the, yeah. the whole you the know food the, courts. The food court. I mean, the flags, the international, like we oh. Spent a lot of time in the Jefferson Valley Mall with a couple of friends, and and uh, you know you got you had your Sparrow, you had right. We had we had a, a walk and roll that was our Chinese food place. We had a New York Deli. We had the Cookie Company. You know, there were all the stars were there. Yeah, there are, there are malls now, but they're not really what they. You used don't to hang. Be. No one goes to the mall to hang out. You would go to the mall. You'd you know, walk around, not do anything probably wouldn't even buy very much but you if know, anything at all if any just go visit your friends that are working yeah. in the stores in the mall slap the mall or visit them those that are working and yeah malls yeah. uh malls were a great place for teens back in the 80s and yeah they really were they really were 80s and early 90s yep yeah i mean the, the malls died out in i think the early 2000s as as the rise of amazon and and ebay and everything so yeah you can always go to the glendale uh galleria it's right yeah there it's there yeah the, the, mall. The, the parking there it's just it's too much for me can't oh, it's, you can you park at the this, galleria you don't want fun. that you want this come on america i'll go to the burbank mall that's where i'll go burbank hey, burbank yeah, that place is How's that place doing? Last, it's the same. Uh, has not changed at all. Last I was there, it had like four stores left, yep. and they were redoing the the food court. There's and... the, the stores are all still there. It's the movie theaters there. Um, the it's funny because watching this, that I swore that the mate the, the the Billingsley, which was was a, Dillard's, was the or not Dillard's Macy's. was the Macy's in in the mall. I dude, I totally thought it's, the same thing. Yeah, it's but I it, looked it up. It's not, it's but not, I right. totally thought it was. Yeah, especially when she's coming down the escalator. Yes. I'm like, dude, That's, that exits right to the men's like yeah. watch and yeah. cologne area. I know exactly where she is. That's oh, so wow. Funny. Yeah, but no, okay. that is it is not. It's not. I guess it's those gotta two, be though. Those two Macy's just have the identical layout. They mu- maybe. Yeah. It's very possible. But like the mirror where the mirrors on the 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 you know the pillars are placed, like the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, I have 100 percent thought the same thing. Yeah. I was like, this is this is definitely the Burbank Mall. Like <laughs> but but no, it was like in Torrance or something. Yeah. It was yeah, Torrance, yeah. Um, all right. Should we talk a little, let's talk a little box office glory and, and some post box office reaction to the movie. So, uh, let's do it. Okay. So 
you know, the, the movie comes out uh, December 25th, 1997, and there's a lot of anticipation. The buzz is, you know, it's it's been probably two years worth of buzz uh, talking about the next Tarantino movie. What's it going to be? What's, you know, how it's going to be amazing, just like Pulp was. So there's, you know, which is not always a good thing when expectations are that high. It's um, it's hard to match those, but uh, it comes out uh, right on Christmas Day, 97, against As Good As It Gets, An American Werewolf in Paris. That's right, the legendary film. I forgot that movie even happened. <laughs> yeah, uh, The Postman and Mr. Magoo. Oh. Interesting competition. Interesting, for sure. And where, did, where do you think Jackie Brown landed? Well... Right at number five, mm. right in between Mouse Hunt and Scream 2. Scream 2, which is out for probably a couple of months at this point, or maybe Man. eight months. So, like, no, like, that's not great. No, not at all. It's bad. That's not, not great. Not what you expected. But look at what was, well, look at what was number one at the box office still. This is coming out just weeks after Titanic. I mean, this can't come out at, christmas you know what i mean like this yeah. is not a christmas movie well, that's just bad it's bad marketing i mean yeah it, yeah like why did this movie not come out in september you know that's when a lot of oscar movies get their first release and then a re-release at christmas well when did pulp fiction release like what time of year i feel like that was more like spring summer but i it was could definitely be totally... earlier in the year it okay. wasn't wasn't as late as this because that had a whole build up. So I would have I would have put it at the same time that yeah Pulp Fiction. So I think that was a big mistake. Um, it it oh. did a nine point two opening weekend. It did a thirty five point six domestic run. A uh, worldwide was seventy four point seven. Its budget was twelve, so it definitely made its money back, but um, could have you know could have served with an earlier release and probably the you know, it, it wouldn't have changed people's expectations, but the competition wouldn't have been there. But that's like, you know, the thing is, is that, that like that opening weekend, you're not getting any of, I mean, there's, there's fans and people who saw Pulp Fiction that you would expect would have gone to see this just based off. Dude, I think Pulp people... Fiction from from what i remember and i remember because i saw it three times in the theater it was all about titanic right then it, it was <laughs> i mean that was just so dominant that people were seeing it over and over and over and the other new you know there was i think tomorrow never dies the james bond movie of that year came out and didn't have as big of an impact as it could have um, yeah i mean i guess titanic sacked everything man like you're yeah. right like the, the, the dude it was it was so dominant you saw that three times in the theater, About dude? Three times, yep. Titanic? Uh, yes, I saw it once with, uh, with Jared and, and Alan McGordo. Saw it once with uh, my girlfriend at the time. And then I saw it with my friends in New York. All within like a month, maybe six weeks. Okay. Um, so mm -hmm. Jackie Brown, it lands uh, at number 55 in 1997, mm -hmm. right between Money Talks and Seven Years in Tibet. So mm -hmm. not ranking high at all. Um, Money Talks? Is that the Al Pacino, Matthew no. McConaughey? Money Talks, isn't that Charlie Sheen and oh, uh, Chris maybe. Tucker? 
Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. Check David, check me on that. Mark okay. check. Check the reconsin computer. Reconsin yeah. Recon compute recon Charlie Sheenan. Recomputer. I was right. Boom. Well done. Good job. What's Chris the one Tucker. I'm thinking? Two for the money? Maybe I'm thinking two for the money. Two Who for the money. Think? Al Pacino, Matthew oh. McConaughey. Yeah. Okay. Uh so yeah, I mean it, it met with general kind of disappointment. Not that people hated the movie, but it just it wasn't pulp fiction. You know, for for the reasons that we talked about that we feel like the movie works at the time, people didn't respond to it because that's yeah, what they worked wanted. against it for yeah, sure. But, yeah. Um, you know, they were they were expecting more and more of the the pop culture references like we got with all the Travolta, you know, stuff and just wasn't just wasn't there. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, it, it, it's definitely a movie that this is a good example of a movie that needed a video release and needed that time to build up and get its credibility back and let people watch it a few years later and digest it and come with a, a, a different perspective. So I, I think that was really important and really what helped it survive. Um, awards wise, it uh, Pam Greer and Sam Jackson got nominated for Golden Globes and and like all the critical awards, right? So it was consistently the two of them. But when it came time for Oscar nominations, neither got it, but Robert Forster did. Got the nominee. Yeah. And I remember at the time, just like I was so, I was like really upset about it because I think, oh no, that's a, that's a year later. I was thinking about Bill Murray not getting it for Rushmore, but that was the following year. Mm. Um, I think there was somebody else that I felt like should have gotten the supporting actor nomination, didn't I? Who's Robert Forster and why did he, like, that's such... That's so lame. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, he didn't win, but just getting the nomination and getting the attention again did, did great things for him. Um, you know, got him back in the spotlight and he was consistently uh, working ever since as we, as we mentioned. So it was really, really great for him. And I think obviously he owes a lot to Tarantino for a lot of actors. Oh, owe, owe many things to Tarantino for, helping them uh, get back to the spotlight. Um, do, what do you guys think though? Do you think it should have Oscar wise should have gotten more attention? Uh, I'd I have to like go back should... and look at what else was, what else was nominated. Yeah. I feel like we should have a, an episode, maybe a special episode where we look back at like certain Oscar years and really look at what got those nominations oh. and wins and versus now that time's gone by, like what could have, like looking back on it, what's gotten more respect over the years? Yeah, because was it the year? Robin, Robin Williams won for Goodwill Hunting and support. I was going to say, was this Goodwill Hunting and yeah, LA Confidential year? Yeah, as good as it gets, uh, Helen Hunt won, and Kim Basinger. Uh, I still who, haven't seen LA Confidential, so never. Oh man, nah, yeah, it's okay. Well, then, all right, that's there, there's a noir vember coming up that mm. maybe that's the perfect that's the perfect well, LA might be time and and Titanic took 13 awards. I mean, obviously you have a lot of technical ish yeah. kind of awards there, yeah. but that's the Titanic year. Yeah. So, but it was a yeah LA Confidential, Goodwill Hunting, Amistad, these Boogie are Nights. The, yeah, yeah. These are the Amistad. Ones. Okay, Amistad. Yep, Amistad is some. Uh, 
Face Off you know, lost against Titanic in best effects, sound effects. Editing. Maybe, oh. maybe, maybe Jackie lost. Maybe Jackie Brown could have been put in instead of Amistad. Like, yeah, uh, I mean, who talks uh, really? Like, nobody who, talks about. It. I mean, like, look, I, I understand. Yeah. You know, like nobody talks about that movie. Doesn't mean it's not a good movie, but you right. know, but that, but that's the thing with with. The I mean, who talks about Jackie Brown though? Too. I mean, we are. Well, right now, I think people do talk about it because more people talk about Tarantino in general. Than Spielberg, than that Spielberg movie. I think when you talk, okay. I, I think discussion is ongoing about all of Tarantino's work because they're constantly comparing to each other. That's fair. Versus Spielberg's movies. I mean, really... there is the QTCU. There's Correct. not the yeah. There's not the SSCU. So you know, guys. Air Force Air Force One and Connor lost against Titanic for best sound. Unbelievable. Air Force oh, One and did you say Con Air? Uh huh. Both of them were up. And how was that know, nominated for? Uh, they split the vote. R.I.P. R.I.P. Wolfgang Peterson. By the two way, two plane movies yeah, against the boat enough. movie. You're screwed. Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right. So overall, what do you what do you feel like? Is is the movie still? Is Jackie Brown still relevant? Is it worth watching? How do you guys? I think feel? it's. I think oh. it's better today than it was. When it released, mm-hmm. yeah, worth a worth a watch. It's yeah. a good time at the movies. Yeah, it's yeah. A, for me. It's aged really well. I think it's it's his most mature film. He feels like a real, even though he wasn't. It, he feels like a more veteran, seasoned director for this one. And you know, some of his later almost feel like a kid playing with his toys. <laughs> you know? Sure. Um, yeah. Where this just feels like real, real seasoned. So. Uh, and it just feels to me, it feels different than his other movies. And, and because of that. So, uh, yeah, this is my guys. This is my number one Tarantino movie. Wow. Right? Oh, really? Number yeah. one. Really? Yeah. yeah. This probably moves up pretty, pretty up there now that I've, now that I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I go, um, without naming all of them, just the top ones. I think at the moment I'm Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wow. Uh Inglorious Bastards, Reservoir Dogs, and then the rest. I'm not a big Kill Bill guy. I know a lot of people love it, but not me. Yeah. Um huh. just so the cast, the performances, uh everyone's just just really on their game on this one. So highly recommend, you know, from from Pam Greer to Sam Jackson to Forrester to De Niro to Bridget Fonda. They're, they're just, they're all fantastic. Yeah. Um, but before we wrap it up, I do want to, I do want to circle back to our trivia questions for those who are, you know, tweeting in and, and messaging us. Let's, let's hit the easy one. So the question was, Name the 1998 film that featured a character from this movie and the actor that played them. You guys got it? It was mentioned. Out of Sight. Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight 1998 features Ray Nicolette, played by Michael Keaton. Hey. Yeah. In a, uh, in, a released by a different studio. And uh, interestingly enough, Tarantino was able to convince them to not even charge each other to use that you know licensed material so wow um yeah he shows up for one scene he's he's great in it and uh um it's a scene with dennis farina and jennifer lopez so if you haven't seen it definitely check out out of sight it's another great elmore leonard movie with a a good michael keaton so is he still part of the atf 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'll and have he to go shows back up and like, watch that. with the leather jacket and the motorcycle helmet. It's and him, a, like straight up, and a like a t-shirt that says FBI. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, now, our hard question: How many films did Pam Greer co-star with Sid Haig? You guys know. You guys are Sid Haig experts. At least six or seven. You, you're, you're right wow. there, David. You're right there. Which I've ones? Got, I don't know. I've got eight. Eight. Yeah. And just list. Throwing, throwing them out in order: the Big Dollhouse, the Big Bird Cage, uh, Black Mama, White Mama, Coffee, Foxy Brown, The Arena, Jackie Brown, and then another movie called, which I hadn't heard of, uh, Machete Maidens Unleashed. Not Whoa. sure what that oh. is, but uh, yeah. The, when uh, was that? 2010. Huh. So they were very, very familiar with each other, had, had spent a lot of time together. So it was cool to see them. It, it, was, it was fitting to see them uh, with, with him as the judge kind of sending yeah, that's the jail. Good. So good call back. Um, all right. So that's about it. That wraps up uh, Jackie Brown. Always, always interesting and fun to talk about the QTCU. Uh, we've got, I don't know if we'll ever cover Pulp Fiction here. Uh, maybe. No but, reason. Yeah, it's such a. We talked about the big talk movies. about it enough. Yeah, the, the big movies, the biggest movies, we, we kind of stay away from. So, um, but yeah, but there's others. So in, in, in the world that, that we will circle back to. But uh, any other final thoughts on Jackie Brown, guys? If you haven't seen it in a long time, go back and watch it because it's uh, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, don't forget to check us out on social media. We're Reconsideration Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And check out our uh, our archives at reconsideration.com. Don't forget to rate and review the shows. Uh, it always helps us out the more the more reviews we get. So, uh, And check out our friend E.K. Wimmer, who does our theme song. And check out his podcast, Laser Graves. And thank you to our friend Curtis Moore for the lovely poster, as usual. And we will see you guys next time for Shocktober's return to Reconsinimation. My favorite month. We got a good one. Stay tuned. Can't wait. <laughs> Take care.
coming up with some garbage about alligators in the sewers. Alligators in the sewers? Once it escaped, there was no way to stop it. No! No! The safety of the public is my job! It could be anywhere. There he is! Ready to attack at any moment. You know, I've seen what this animal can do. You'd better take all the help you can get. Believed it. Now, no one will forget it. Alligator.